0: let's pray Father God in heaven thank you Lord for this day Father thank you for another day on this planet not to do our own thing but to look to you to, to build our faith in you to draw closer to you. Lord, we have plans in this life, but your plan is the ultimate plan. And I pray, Lord, today as we study your word, as we study the Sermon on the Mount, God, that you'll open our our hearts, not our physical eyes, but open the eyes of our hearts and let us see you clearly and in truth. Let us study your word. Let us study your word so intensely today. Lord, as if today is our last day on this earth. And we have to get a hold of this truth. Lord, let let your word grip our hearts. In the mighty name of the Lord Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Great to see all you guys this morning thankful that you've joined us for worship and fellowship and getting into the word. You know, my hope and prayer as a pastor is that people come to church and they're hungry to get into the word and they're they're hungry to worship Jesus, worship in the Lord, worship in the Holy Spirit and they're, they're hungry to see their brothers and sisters in Christ. The fist pump. We need each other. We need each other. You need what takes place on Sunday mornings. You need what takes place in life groups. You need what takes place in those fellowship groups and, and Bible studies. It's so important that we have that. So, so, so wonderful. To, um, so I'm thankful to be with you guys this morning, and I hope you're thankful to be here. And we're going to dig into the Word this morning. So please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. This morning we're going to be studying verses uh, 21 through 32. Verses 21 through 32. Let me turn there also. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 32. Let's um read these opening scriptures so we get our minds oriented in the direction we are going this morning. Matthew chapter 5. Let's read verses 21 through 26. Jesus said, Jesus' words, this is his Sermon on the Mount. He's there on the northern shore of Galilee on the hillside speaking to his disciples and many others he says you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court but i say to you everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court and whoever says to his brother you good for nothing shall be guilty before the supreme court and whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponents at law while you are with them on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Truly, I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up every last cent. So we're in the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus' greatest exposition. This is his greatest teaching there as he begins his earthly ministry. And question for you to think about this morning: what is the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount? What is the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount? There's really many there's really many angles that you could look at the sermon on the mount. Number 1 is to show that God's kingdom is the polar opposite of this world. In his teaching Steve Lawson, he talks about the the kingdom of God is an upside down kingdom. And what he means by that is that the kingdom of God is the opposite of this world. Okay? And almost every area of life, every facet of life is the extreme opposite The world's standard and God's standards are polar opposite. Number two, the Sermon on the Mount teaches you and I how to please God. It teaches us how to please the Lord in our everyday living. And this is the third one where I'm going with the title of my message this morning, Matters of the Heart, is this. The Sermon on the Mount shows that righteousness is a matter of the heart. Okay? It's not a matter of how you look on the outside or how you appear to me or how you appear to your friends. It's what's on the inside that matters, okay? Don't be a Pharisee. Don't be a legalist and judge the world and judge people by what they look like on the outside. Jesus is going to establish that, that uh, righteousness is a matter of the heart. Jesus is going to repeat Um, six phrases in the next 20 verses, you're going to hear this a lot, is found in verse 21, verse 27, verse 31, verse 33, verse 38, and verse 43, where Jesus is going to say these words, you have heard, but I say to you. You have heard, but I say to you. And he repeats that a grand total of six times. So the six things that we're going to be looking at, these are matters of the heart. They are murder, sexual sin, divorce, speaking the truth, revenge and retaliation, and loving others. These are the six topics that we are covering. We're actually, gonna, I'm only going to cover the first three today. I'm going to cover murder, sexual sin, and divorce today. And next Sunday, we'll, we'll cover speaking the truth, revenge retaliation, and, and loving others. But I, I, I know right now, beyond a shadow of a doubt, each and every one of us, have come into this place this morning and we have a strong opinion and a strong belief on each one of these subjects, okay? And the question we need to ask ourselves is, does our opinion, does our belief on one of these six subjects, does it align with scripture? That's what's important, that we bend our will, we bend our beliefs, and we submit them to the word of God. And what scripture says that's part of being a disciple that word disciple it means pupil it means learner if you're a disciple of christ then you come to the lord you come to his word and you say lord teach me so jesus through the scriptures is going to teach us as we look at this morning on the first three murder sexual sin and divorce i know this is a very sensitive subject for many people And when we get to the subject of, especially of divorce, because it's impacted so many people, you know, just know that we're going to see what the scripture says, we're going to apply it to our lives, and we're going to see what the word of God says. And I don't know what's happened in the past. We cannot control the past. There's nothing you can do about the past. There's no rewind button in life, but all we can do is move forward from this day forward as we talk about All three of these subjects. Y'all ready to dive in? Let's do it. Matthew chapter five, let's take a look at verse 21. Jesus says, You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable of the courts. Now Jesus is not expounding on the law, as some would say. Jesus, what Jesus is doing in this passage is he is correcting the, the teachings of the rabbis. The rabbis had written volumes of books on what each commandment meant and what the laws of the Old Testament meant. And Jesus is correcting their understanding of the law. And this first one here, murder. Murder. Yikes. Yikes. People go to prison for this. It's a serious, heinous crime. So let's, let's, let's lay a foundation this morning. What is murder in the eyes of God? What is our theology of murder. Exodus chapter 20 verse 13 says, you shall not commit murder. That is the sixth commandment. Murder is the intentional killing of another human being for purely personal reasons, okay? The Hebrew word for murder in, in Exodus 20 is rasach. It's used to describe in the Bible for criminal killing. It's, it's that heinous crime. It's that killing uh, out of selfish, sinful reasons. It's, now, it doesn't mean that taking of all life is murder. Because if we go to other passages of Scripture, it's clear that capital punishment, just warfare, and even self-defense is not murder. But this is a heinous, evil act of taking an innocent life. That is what this word "rasak" means, this word for murder. Now, we've established what murder is. Here's the big question. Who is a murderer? And the answer might surprise you. Look at the next verse. Jesus said, the Lord Jesus, there on the Sermon on the Mount, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. Talking about before God Almighty. And whoever says you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Now, do you see where we're talking about matters of the heart? Jesus is going to the matter of the heart, which is inside the soul of, of each of us inside the soul of human beings, and Jesus says here that hateful anger is the same in God's eyes as murder. And for those who live in this pattern as a way of life, or what, they're in grave danger of hell. So what is the text? Is what Jesus said. John will reemphasize this in First John chapter three, verse 15 in his epistles, where he says, "Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him." See, family, God's standard this is important. please take note of this. What we need to understand is God's standard skyrockets above our standard. You know, we look at murder, and we think of the heinous crime. And we're like, send them to prison. S- execute them. Punish them greatly. But God says it's more than just the physical act. It's the heart. It's the heart. He's, he sees hatred as murder. So, family, I'm just being honest with you. I'm just being, presenting to you what the Scripture says. So, before you judge someone who has committed the physical crime of murder... Look at your own heart. Jesus says that you and your pastor are just as guilty as them. So who is a murderer? Who's a murderer by God's standard? All of us. Because we've hated people. We've had anger. and We've had bitterness towards people. And God says that is the same thing. It's not just the physical act. It's always been a matter of the heart. Can you say thank you for the cross? Can you say thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ? Can you say thank you for the precious blood that was shed at Calvary for the forgiveness of our sin? Can you say thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit who's come into my life and made me born again and removed the heart of hate, removed the heart of anger, removed the heart of bitterness by the blood of Jesus through being born again? He removes that bitterness and that anger and that hatred. And he gives us a love for all people. A love for all people, no matter where they're at in life. So thank you, Lord, for the cross. Thank you that even our, our murderous thoughts are under the blood. And he's given us a new heart. Let's continue. As, as we break up in these sections, Jesus has still got murder in the frame of his thought as he's speaking. Look at verse 23. He says, therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. So Jesus is saying here that before we come to church, before we offer a sacrifice of praise, before we worship, worship before we worship the Lord, if you have bitterness, rage, and anger towards others or they have it towards you, don't give the devil a foothold. Go and make peace. Be a peacemaker. Go make reconciliation with those that you're at odds with, and then after you've taken care of that business, then come and sing a song to the Lord. Offer a sacrifice of praise. Give him thanks and, and, and worship him in, for all he is. But again, remember this. God lo- looks at the heart and we have bitterness and anger towards people or they have it towards us, vice versa. We have to take care of business. That's part of our worship before the Lord is to be peacemakers. Let's continue. Verse 25. He says, Make friends quickly with your opponents at law while you are with them on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. And what he's talking about here is he's saying, you got to take this stuff serious, okay? You can't break fellowship, have anger, have animosity with someone and just leave it there and split. If you're, if you're gonna break up over a friendship or over a fellowship or something, at least make peace with each other before you go your separate ways. Sometimes friendships aren't just meant to be. They're just not meant to be. But don't have anger towards your heart, in your heart towards them, or let it be the other way. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 says, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. That's Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. And I wanna highlight that it says, make every effort. Make every effort, Christian. As I'm reading this this week, the Lord is, the Holy Spirit is putting his hand on my heart and he's saying, David, you make every effort. You make every effort to live at peace with everyone. We're not here to make enemies, okay? Regardless of whether we agree with people Or we disagree with people over issues, we don't make enemies. We always want to leave a door open so that we can minister to that person in the future, or you know, if they're lost, we can we can um, share the gospel with them. In the Hebrews twelve fourteen, it's interesting because it puts making every effort to live in peace parallel with living a holy life. So, what does that say? That's part of living a holy life. Okay? See, see, see our Christianity is now is starting to move outside the realm of belief. And it's starting to move into the realm of action. But that's, if we are sincere in our faith and being a disciple for Christ, we're going to pursue peace with all men, understanding that it's our duty and our obligation before the Lord. So that, through verse 26, is the first picture we have of murder and the thing that we learned, we learned what murder is, is the taking of innocent life but we also learned that God looks at the heart and he sees anger and hatred and bitterness in our hearts as the same as the violent act of murder let's not murder people in our hearts but rather let's show them grace truth Mercy, love, compassion, and all the other wonderful attributes that God has displayed in showing us. All right, let's talk about sexual sin. Whoa, here we go. Sexual sin is the next thing Jesus addresses. Look at verse 27. Verse 27 says, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. What is adultery? Adultery is sexual sin. Sexual sin that is a violation and a breaking of the Seventh Commandment. The Seventh of the Ten Commandments says you shall not commit adultery. Under the umbrella of the Seventh Commandment would include fornication, homosexuality, a husband or a wife being unfaithful. Now, people read these verses and they read these passages about sex And they just get this evil thought towards it. And I'm here to tell you, sex is not bad. Sex is not evil. Sex is a beautiful, wonderful thing. It's beautiful. It's amazing. It's awesome. It's very enjoyable. And it is God's gift to a husband and wife for procreation and enjoyment. Okay? It's a beautiful, wonderful gift, but God has set boundaries. God has set boundaries on sex, and it is for a husband and wife in marriage. You know what I call it? Rings with benefits. <laughs> Rings with benefits. It's a beautiful thing. Sexual intimacy and in the husband and wife coming together after they are married. But look at verse 28. So adultery is is sexual sin. All sexual sin. Now look at verse 28. Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This would sting the ears of the world. Just the thought of having to wait till you get married to have sex is just preposterous in our culture today. It's it's crazy what they think. You know, looking at verse 28, the sin of adultery is more than just the physical act. It is the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. Jesus says here, verse 28, if we lust in our hearts, it's the same as adultery. Again, back to the title of my message, the thesis of my message, righteousness is a matter of the heart. God doesn't just look at the outer appearance. He looks at what's taking place in the heart. Now, this is very important. I want to define to you what lust is and what lust is not. Okay, because sometimes this can trip Christians up. This can trip people up. Lust Is not saying, wow, he or she is so beautiful. I'll never forget the first time I laid eyes on Irene. I knew nothing about her heart, okay? But I was blown away by her beauty. And I was like, wow, she is beautiful. She is gorgeous. She is very physically attractive. Lust is not looking at someone and admiring how physically attractive they are, okay? There's nothing wrong with looking at someone and seeing they're physically attractive or they're beautiful or they have a nice shape or or none of that. Lust is much deeper than that. Lust, here it is, here's the definition of lust. Lust is when you undress someone in your mind and you have fantasies of doing things with them. And if given the opportunity you would fulfill that fantasy. This is adultery of the heart. It's that deep, fleshly, carnal rage on the inside that just wants to fulfill the carnal flesh. And if given the opportunity, the, what was what's taking place in the mind and heart would be manifested in the physical realm if given the opportunity. That's what lust is. That's And that's what um, Jesus says is think about it. Seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. We think about the physical act. It's the physical act of adultery taking place inside the heart. That's what he's talking about here. That's the sexual immorality. And family, you know, part of our sanctification, part of our growing in our faith, part of walking with the Lord Jesus Christ is, you know, I read a statistic, um, over 70% of people in church struggle with, with some kind of sexual sin or some kind of temptation or whatever. So uh, we have to do whatever it takes. We have to take drastic measures in our, in our sanctification, in our walk with the Lord to cut those things out. Look at verse 29 and 30. It's where Jesus is going here. Verse 29 and 30, he says, If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off. Throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now some of you are thinking, man, I got to head for the door. I got to head for the door. Pastor, are you telling me that according to verse 29 and 30, if I struggle with sexual sin that I need to show up next Sunday with one eye gouged out and a hand cut off? Do I need to go to the doctor and have that procedure done? No, no. This is what you call teaching through hyperbole. Jesus here is teaching through hyperbole. And what he's saying here is, take drastic measures. Take drastic measures. Do whatever it takes to get away from temptation and to get away from sin. Whatever's causing you to stumble get rid of it, is what Christ is saying. If the internet causes you to stumble, get rid of it. It's not a life necessity. If your smartphone causes you to stumble, get rid of it. If someone in your life is causing you to fall into sexual sin, then break off the relationship. Again, I was doing some research, doing some homework in, in, on this subject in our culture today, and what's taking place in the church today. And I read a statistic that says 70% of men and women in churches uh, struggle in the area of sexual purity. How could you not? It's all around us. By the time you leave church today and you've got home, I don't know how many billboards you're gonna see. I don't know how many things you're gonna see. It's com- completely around us. It's, it's, it surrounds us on all corners. So here's an application to this part on on sexual immorality. What do you do if you find yourself struggling with sexual immorality? These are just four principles that I would suggest to my brothers and sisters. If you are here and you are struggling with fornication, homosexuality, or pornography, four steps, four things that you can take into consideration. Number one, repent. Repent and take it to the cross just like you would any other sin, okay? Sin is sin in my book. You know, whether you struggle in this area of your life or in this area of your life, it's all sin in God's sight. And when we sin, what do we do? 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all our sins. You bring it to God. You bring it to God. Don't run from him. Don't try to hide it from him. There's this thing called G-R-A-C-E. It's called grace. There's, There's this person called the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit and the grace of God will help you move forward in this area of your life and give you the victory. But you gotta first start with God. You gotta take it to the Lord. And God will not push you away. He will welcome you into his presence. And he will do heart surgery on you. But you first have to take it to the Lord and don't try to hide it from him. Secondly, uh, I put up there, clean house. What does clean house mean? That's verses 29 and 30. Take drastic measures to remove whatever's tempting you. You know, if there's literature in your house that's that's tempting you, throw it in the trash can. If a computer or something is, is causing you to stumble or fall, Get a filter, get the protection plans that they have out there, you know, um, accountability things. But if that doesn't work, get rid of it. But you gotta clean house. You gotta remove the temptations around you, okay? You will fall, I will fall if I don't remove the temptations around us. Thirdly, get accountability. Get accountability in this area of your life. Find a brother or sister in Christ who will come alongside you and lovingly, gracefully, Kindly hold you accountable. Show each other grace. Show each other love. Show each other truth. Help each other. You know what? We're we're here to help each other. So many times we come to church and we got the the Christianese face on. We got the smile and we think all is well. But most of the time we're not. We're not. We're struggling. We're fighting. We're wrestling. Probably. of us in here are are wrestling through some of these areas of our life. And what we need to do is just be honest with our brother or sister in Christ and ask for accountability in this area of our life. Confide in our brother or sister. Fourthly, fill your heart and mind with God's word. You know, I have found in my Christian experience, the more I fill my heart and my mind with the word of God, the greater my victory is over temptation. It's just that simple. You got you to gotta, you gotta carve out time in your daily life to spend time in the word and um, spend time in the word, spend time in prayer, make it a sacrifice. When you're tempted to sin, when you're tempted to fall, and each and every one of us have faced it, Lord, say I'm a God, I'm in, in this moment I'm gonna worship you, I'm gonna resist that temptation, and I'm gonna go find my Bible, and I'm gonna get into the word. It wars against us all. This area of sexual sin, it wars against every Christian and every believer. You know, it's once we step into our faith, once we begin our relationship with Christ, once you're born again, that's when the fight begins. All right, so we've covered two. We, we've covered murder, and we've covered sexual sin. Let's look at the final one. And this one, probably more than all of them have affected us the most. Divorce. Let's look at verse 31. Verse 31 says, It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, again, as I talked about earlier, Jesus is not expounding on the law. What Jesus is doing here on the Sermon on the Mount, especially this part of the text, is he is correcting the rabbinical interpretation of Old Testament passages. And the Old Testament passage that is in question here is Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, which says this. This is, and the, the thing that the, in the rabbinical writings, was what does this word some uncleanness mean? But this is what they're debating, verse chapter twenty-four, verse one. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some uncleanness in her, he writes her a certificate of divorce. He puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. And the, the question in Jesus' day was what does this phrase mean? What does some uncleanness mean? Well, in Jesus' day, there were two schools of thought. There was the school of Hillel and the school of Shema. Those are the two uh, rabbinical influences of Jesus' day, and they both had two separate interpretations. Don't get ahead of me, because some of these are funny (laughs) and ridiculous. But the school of Hillel This was some of their reasons for a man to divorce his wife. Now, the school of Hillel was was a liberal school of thought. It was a liberal, worldly school of thought. But theirs was, if she did not find grace in his sight, he could just write her a certificate of divorce. Number two, if she went out on the streets with her hair loose, I guess they're supposed to pin it up or whatever, I don't know. Um, if she spins around in public. Don't, don't ask me to explain that. But that was what I found in my research. That if, if she spins around in public. If she talks with another man. How about this one? If she burns his dinner. <laughs> if she burns his dinner. Um, the sixth one, according to the school of Hillel. If she is a noisy woman. So this is the, again, the school of Hillel... Was a liberal religious view that really completely just got away from the Bible. That was their position. Then there was the school of Shema. The school of Shema interpreted that phrase, some uncleanness, in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1 as no, that, that phrase, some uncleanness, is sexual immorality that could be proven by a witness. So Jesus, which is it? Is it it Jesus? Is it the school of Hillel? Or is it the school of Shema? And Jesus answers that question in verse 32 to clarify it. Let me, Jesus is saying, let me set the standard straight. It's not the school of Hillel. He says in verse 32, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So Jesus says here that the school of Shema is correct. That adultery and sexual immorality is grounds for divorce. It's what Jesus says there in verse 32. Now, let me emphasize, Jesus did not say adultery mandates divorce, but it can be grounds for a divorce. I know many marriages that have experienced adultery, and by God's grace, they stand today healed, restored, and delivered by the grace of God. Adultery is not a death sentence, provided the guilty spouse is repentant and the other spouse is willing to forgive. But I have also seen adultery so crush a marriage through lies, deception, and fornication that there's nothing left to rebuild. And it ends in divorce. So it's tough. And you know, there's there's not one answer fits all situations because it's such a complicated situation on the area of, of divorce and remarriage. Now, I, before I discuss with you what I believe are biblical grounds for divorce, I'm gonna give you what I believe are three biblical grounds of divorce. But before I share those with you, I want you to understand and hear me clearly that God hates divorce. God hates divorce. Malachi 2.16, he says, for I hate divorce. The marriage covenant is meant to be till death do us part. But we live in a fallen world, and there are times when adultery, lies, and deception have so ruined a marriage that there can be biblical grounds for divorce. So I want to to present to you three. Do not look at these as a loophole. Do not look at these as a way out. But look at these as the fallen state of man. And and that sometimes things get so wrecked and are, are done so badly that there's nothing left. And there's provision made for that in Scripture. So I want to give you three Biblical grounds for divorce. And the first one we've already talked about, which is adultery. The first one is adultery. The scripture for that is Matthew 5, 31 and 32, which we just talked about. Matthew chapter 19, verses one through 10. And adultery is sexual immorality by a spouse who is unrepentant. and continues. It just completely wrecks the marriage through adultery. It's very sad. It's very heartbreaking. It, it it hurts so many people. The husband, the wife, the children, the extended family. But adultery is biblical, can be, can be biblical grounds for a divorce. Second one, second reason, abandonment. Abandonment. The text for abandonment comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 14 through 15. where where the scripture says, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. And what he says in that text, if you go back and study it, he's saying, believer, if you're married to an unbeliever and they're willing to stay, you stay put, you stay in that marriage or vice versa. Just because a, a spouse is not a believer, that is not a reason for divorce. It says, you're, it says you sanctify them. doesn't mean they're saved, but it means that God's blessing is over that home because you're a believer and you're standing in the gap for the family. But verse 15, verse 15, look at verse 15. He says, But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Again, this is desertion. By, this is desertion by an unbelieving spouse. This is um, <clears throat> abandonment. And this is the unbelieving spouse refusing to return. I believe that's what's in light here, is this abandonment that, that the innocent party has nothing to do with. There's nothing they can do. They, they, they love the other spouse. They want the other spouse, but the other spouse is checked out and gone. And refuses to repent or return. That is the second reason for abandonment. This third reason that I want to present to you, I believe, is grounds um, for a divorce. I've I've never I've never heard a preacher preach on this, but it's one of my convictions that based on my studies when I was in seminary on 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 through 13. But the third reason I call biblical grounds for divorce is violence and abuse. Violence and abuse. I believe violence or abuse can be grounds, biblical grounds, for a divorce when a spouse or the children are harmed or abused by the husband or the wife. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 through 13. And I'm going to bring out the definition of the word consent. But uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 through 13 says, But I say, but to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. I circle the two words, The Greek word for consent is sonodikeo. It means to agree with and to be in harmony. That's what that word means. Physical violence and abuse is not consenting. Okay? It's not consenting. I recently read the story of a church where a wife went to the elders of her church and informed them her husband, who was an elder, was being violent towards her and the children. Some of the abuse toward the children was sexual. She was asking for help and she wanted to leave and separate from him. The church's response was, stay with your husband and suffer unto Jesus. When I read this story, it about blew a gasket, because it was so wrong. But uh, thankfully, um, she went to law enforcement and it got taken care of. Family news flash, God calls no one to suffer abuse at the hands of anyone, especially a spouse. To verbally or physically abuse a spouse or children is evil and unacceptable. If you come to me with a similar situation where there's violence, where there's abuse, the first thing we're gonna do is get you out of that situation. Then after we get you out of the situation, we're calling the sheriff's department and do things right because that's just unacceptable. You can't be violent and abusive. You know, you know if there is violence and abuse and, and the spouse wants to repent and move towards restoration, then praise the Lord. If there is abandonment and, and the guilty one is, is repentant, and wanting to work things out, that's a good thing. And we should work towards reconciliation. Again, remember, above all these biblical grounds for divorce is God wants reconciliation. God wants reconciliation. He wants forgiveness. He wants healing. He wants the marriage to be restored. But understanding that the sinful world that we live in, we just understand there's some situations where it's just that bad. And, 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 and so I understand, okay? I understand that d- divorce hurts and, and scars a lot of people, okay? I totally, I get it. I, I talk with people on a weekly, monthly basis about the things that they're facing and my heart goes out to you and I love you, I care for you, I wanna help you, our church wants to help you, we wanna come alongside you and do everything we can to minister God's grace to you and bring hope and healing and forgiveness, hopefully to your marriage, but also to you also. So I I understand many in the church today have been scarred by it. So here's what I want to do. I want to conclude with a word of grace, a word of truth, and a word of encouragement. If you are here or listening online and it has hurt you, maybe you're listening And you've experienced the pain of divorce. Maybe you're the innocent party. Maybe you're the guilty party. You're asking, Pastor David, where do I go from here? Have I committed the unpardonable sin? Is God angry at me? Is there any hope for me? You know, this is complicated. And don't think there's a one answer fits all, because there's not. You know, what do I do? What, What do I do if I have divorced? and we've both remarried, and I have children with my second marriage. Do I leave that spouse to go back to the other spouse? See, it can get complicated. And the answer is no, (laughs) no, no, you don't. It can get very complicated when it comes to this issue. And I believe that every situation has to be worked out with the parameters that caused the divorce and the situation. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. Here's my word of encouragement to you, to you. And it starts today. You know now. You know now what the scripture teaches. And here's the thing. You can't change the past. You can't change the past. You know now you can't change the past. It's time to move forward in life and go and let go of the past. Make a decision today that from this day forward you will honor the Lord in this area of your life. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. God will completely forgive you and restore you as you surrender your life to him, and he will bless the marriage you're in now or will be in again one day. We can't change the past. You've blown, you, 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 you blown the past. I've blown the past in different areas of our life. We've all blown the past. The only thing that you can control is moving forward from today, the Lord's day, this day, and what happens in the future. And make a commitment in your heart. Starting today, whatever today's date is, I think it's the 16th or 17th. Starting today, moving forward in life. God, I want to honor you in every area of my life, including this area. So that concludes our teaching on the first three sections of this portion of scripture we're looking at. Murder, sexual purity, and divorce are matters of the heart. And God's word is crystal clear on these subjects. Where is your heart this morning on these matters? You know, when I read the scriptures a lot of times I'll find that my beliefs don't completely line up. My, 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 my thoughts, my understanding, when I read Scripture and I study Scripture and I, you know, um, systematic theology, I bring everything the Bible says about the subjects, it's, that is in the moment where we grow in our faith. Jesus said in John 17, 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So my prayer for us this morning is a body, is that we rightly understand murder, sexual purity and divorce and we move forward. No, we have no control over the past. But moving forward from this day forward, we say, "Lord, I want to honor you. I want to honor you in this area of my life." So, Lord, help us to bow our hearts to your truth. Help us to live by your truth. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you, Lord for this time of study in your word. And Father in heaven, I just uh, praise you and magnify you. Lord, help us to understand um, the serious nature of these matters of the heart. And Lord, help us and our being a disciple, being a pupil, help us to follow you with all of our hearts by trusting the precepts and the teachings of your word in all these matters of heart. For it's in Jesus' mighty name I pray, amen.